In Jesus' name, amen. Um, thanks, Paul. And the young people, uh, you can go. The guys that are first and third year, yeah, are heading out now. Uh, so, bless you. And that same prayer for you, Ellen, and whoever else is taking you guys. <clears throat> I'd been in the post about eight weeks. It was a new post in a new college and uh, there were lots of things that needed to be done. In fact, the post that I was taking up had been vacant for almost a year and uh, the one or two key people who were in the department were missing. They were off ill. And so there were so many holes in the strategy. There were so many things that had to be patched up. There was so much to do. And it really was quite a stressful situation. It was going to take a long time before uh, any possibility of hope would be restored uh, because the, 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 the sort of department had been left vacant for so long. <clears throat> it was kind of stressful because uh, there was so much to be done, but this was Friday and next week was half term. Uh, and I had booked one of those cheapos that I'm famous for knowing about on Ryanair, and we were on our way, hopefully the next day, uh, to enjoy some time as a family together in France. That made it all so much better. And then the text came in from the vice principal that afternoon. Bad news, Alistair. She said, we've got an unannounced inspection that is arriving on Monday when we return from half term. Suddenly for me, that promise of peace evaporated in that moment. That thought of relaxing in my mind, in my headspace, whilst walking along, hopefully in the sunshine with my family or whatever, that just suddenly became, I knew, a distant hope. Because I knew that I would be fretting. I knew I'd be anxious because I knew what they would find on the Monday when I came back from half term. What do you do when your heart is in turmoil? What do you do when life throws you a curveball that you weren't expecting? It so often happens, doesn't it, when life is relatively calm and then unexpectedly out of the blue, uh, this curveball comes in. That's what this passage in John 14 is about today. What happens when the burden of stress starts affecting your sleep? It maybe affects your health. You maybe have headaches. You maybe feel helpless. Maybe even for some it gets so bad that there are darker thoughts as well. How do we cope in such circumstances? And maybe for some it's very extreme, but for others it's not as dramatic as that. What's the remedy when life's circumstances make us feeling overwhelmed? What's the remedy for a troubled heart? Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, there's some guidance, I hope, for all of us in such circumstances, because the disciples were facing such a dilemma. They had come through a lot and their last three years they'd been with Jesus had been full of encouragements, but plenty of stress. But each time somehow in that moment, 
As long as Jesus was there, the equilibrium in their minds and hearts was restored. And then one evening, out of the blue, the rug was pulled from underneath them. And it's in this moment that Jesus provides them and us with what I believe is important guidance and help. The context is in John uh, chapter 13. Uh, we just look briefly at the chapter before. You'll remember this story um, of, of the, the disciples sitting around uh, having supper, a supper that Jesus had said to them that he was looking forward to, he had longed for, he was having an evening meal, and a supper that was made famous for a number of reasons, not least of which was the one where Jesus had washed their feet. They were enjoying mealtime together. That PowerPoint hasn't come out as it, as it looked in my machine, by the way. So it looks a bit bizarre. I, I, I get that. But having a meal together is something I, I, I'm discovering the benefits of again I, 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 with, with good friends or with family. And research suggests that there are many health benefits to us eating together. It relieves stress because conversation around a table is different, apparently, from conversation on the phone. That's straight from university research. I'm so glad we paid them to do that. It also strengthens relationships between people having conversations around a meal, both friends and children. And so it's very foundational for families to have meals together. It also improves your brain function. So... You might think to yourself, that boy doesn't have too many meals after all. <laughs> but there's something beautiful about it, I'm discovering again, about having a meal with good friends. Whether it's in their house or going out, and I'm rediscovering this benefit. The disciples, they knew all about it. Jesus didn't need university research because he knew the benefits of eating with people and he was often accused of being a glutton and the friend of sinners because that was his pattern, eating with people. The conversation had been good and it was followed by this profound lesson which is somewhat obscurely in this uh, abstract picture. Uh, you see this picture of, of Jesus pouring the water. But then all of a sudden, three bombshells were landed in the middle of this time of calm reflection. The peace appears to have been bolted from the room. How often can that happen to us? And so bombshell number one comes in chapter 13, verse 21. Jesus says uh, he was troubled in spirit or became visibly upset, one of the translations says. And he says, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples were shocked. Imagine the scene here, and I say to you, I have good authority that someone in this room is betraying the rest of the church. Just think of that for a moment. One of you is betraying the rest of us. What emotion would you feel in your heart? Would it be hurt? How could someone do this? And for the disciples, they saw that he was visibly upset as he was saying this, what have they done to him? Who could it be? There was an awkward moment, I assume. It was deeply troubling for them that one of their number was going to betray him. And then 
bombshell number two comes in. In verse 33, he said, I will be with you only a little longer. You look for me. And then he goes on to say, where I'm going, you cannot come. Think of the impact of that. I am leaving you. And Peter reacts. He says, look, look, you know, he, he reacts like I would react. Why can't we come? Where are you going? Think of the terror they felt. Jesus was the one who'd always been, it was okay as long as Jesus was there. Because he had been the one that had brought wisdom. He'd been the one that had brought calm. He'd been the one that had sorted out the problem. And they had given the last three years of their life up to him and they were following him. And suddenly he's saying, I'm leaving you. You look for me and where, you're, where I'm going, you can't come. Kind of like a panicked child at the first day of nursery as the parent drops them off. And then bombshell number three lands on them. Peter, you will deny me. In the next 24 hours, before dawn, you're going to, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. And in another gospel account, Jesus also says, and you'll all fall away on account of me. How that moment of peace and tranquility and learning a powerful lesson about service had evaporated in that moment of three bombshells. And it's in this moment that Jesus commands something amazing. Something that I believe that we can take on board when the rug is pulled out from under us. And I imagine Jesus in John chapter 14 with the whites on his eyes speaking to his disciples. And this is what he says. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. When life throws you a blow or two and you're wounded and your heart is troubled and you're feeling overwhelmed, Maybe a friend says to you, oh, don't worry about it. And your reaction might be, I want to slap them because they've absolutely no idea about what I'm going through. What a stupid thing to say to me. Seriously, don't worry about it. You're not walking in my shoes, but it's different when Jesus says something because his disciples knew that when he said and when he commanded something, he didn't give them something to do that he wouldn't expect them to be able to do. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. When life is falling around us, as was the case for the disciples, Jesus said that there's one thing you can do. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But he goes on and he says what they can do in the next part of John chapter 14, verse 1. He says this, believe in God, believe also in me, or trust in God, trust also in me. He says the prescription for a troubled heart is to trust in me. Jesus was effectively promising peace and strength to see them through this storm by calling them to believe in him and to trust him. Now, if you're like me, you'll agree, I think, at least I agree, because I'm like me. If I could push a button in that moment, and say, that button is, trust God, I'd do it. I'd do it willingly. 
Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust God. Okay, done. I can agree that in principle. It's a good thing to do, isn't it? But so often the reality is different in my mind and I replay the moment and I try to fix it. And I try to think of all the different scenarios of how I can, what, what's the worst thing can happen and how can I do it? I try to reassure myself of the possible way forward. And this is what's happening here. This scene is being played out here. And Peter wants to know where Jesus is going. And Thomas needs more information. And, and they're all thrown into turmoil. So Jesus, in the next few verses, he provides some promises that they can cling to. And so can we. So if you are a person that has a propensity to worry, you're a person that struggles with anxiety, listen up because Jesus gives some really good advice here. Reasons why we can trust him. And the first one is this, Jesus says, there is a place for you in heaven. In my father's house are many rooms, verse two, he says. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's saying to them, focus on eternity. You can trust me because I want you to focus on eternity when all will be good and there'll be no more mourning and there'll be no more pain. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, set your hearts on things above. This is about priorities, isn't it? Living now with eternity in mind. There's a place for you in heaven. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Paul, the other Paul, our Paul, said a couple of weeks ago, um, having an eternal perspective can help us see God's glory even through tragedy. How much does heaven and hell have to do with my everyday practical living, everyday conversation, my everyday activity? Heaven's mentioned over 550 times in the Bible. How much of that has an impact on me today? This is what C.S. Lewis said. I thought it was really interesting. He said, for many sincere Christian believers, it's not that matter is all there is. It's that matter is all that matters. We believe it, don't we? We believe that there's a supernatural, that there's a, that there's a heaven beyond. But in our everyday, so often, matter is all that matters. Just let me give you a health warning. Living with eternity in mind will affect each of us. The more we focus on eternity, the more it will affect my wallet, I would suggest, at least my wallet. The more it will affect my evangelistic zeal if I'm living with eternity in mind. But Jesus is saying to his disciples in this moment of anxiety, trust me, there's a place for you in heaven. The key to keeping your heart from being overwhelmed is to remember that you have a home in heaven, something that is waiting for you. But he goes on, and the next thing he says is verse three. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Next slide there, Jacob, please. And the, and the, the text is obviously missing there. But he's saying, look, I will be there. It's not just that there's a place for you. He's saying, I will be there. The essence of heaven is the immediate presence of Jesus, you see. And as someone who doesn't know Jesus, maybe you think, 
That's not a big deal. I want to be in the place. But to the disciples, this was everything. It was huge. Often I look at the disciples and I'm kind of smugly perplexed as how they just didn't get it so often, how they missed so many things that Jesus had already told them he was leaving them, but they hadn't got it before. But somehow they did get this. They got the fact that in your presence, as the psalmist said, is fullness of joy. They got the fact that in Jesus' presence, in walking with him, is where they wanted to be. And that's a tremendous privilege and promise and hope for each of us who know him, that we'll see him face to face. And I'm challenged by this this year. I've really been sitting thinking about this all all what are we on January the something? All this year so far, the last 20 days. I want to know him better because I believe there's more to know. And sometimes that's often happens. Getting to know him better is discovered in times of adversity. So to know Jesus brings a stronger desire to live in that place in eternity. And it gives me encouragement and strength for today to know that there's a place and that he will be there. But the third point comes from a point that Thomas makes. Because Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is like that person. I don't know if you had that type of person in school that always asked the question of the teacher. And you're going, (laughs) But you're thinking, thank goodness they asked, because I didn't know that. You know that sort of obvious question? Thomas is that guy that asked that. We used to play this. Well, I didn't play this practical joke, but I remember there used to be this joke played in school around the dinner table, um, and somebody would be, the, would be the person you'd prank, and the, the person would tell a joke, and everybody was in on the prank, and they would tell a joke that wasn't funny at all, and everybody would laugh to see whether this person would laugh. And when something like this, a guy goes into a chemist and asks for a bar of soap. And the chemist says, I'm sorry, we don't have soap. And he says, it's okay, I came on bike. And everybody laughs. It's quite funny, but it's not funny. And then the person who's sitting there, they laugh too. And then someone else is primed to go, I don't get it. Would you explain it to me? And it's a horrible prank. But you need that person in that moment who asks the question. Thomas would never have laughed at that point in time. He'd have said, hang on a minute. I don't get it. Explain it to me now. And that's the sort of person Thomas was. Give me a map, Jesus. Show me the way. It's all very well saying this, but I need to know the way. And thank goodness for Thomas. He cared enough to ask, and because of him, Jesus responds with this profound statement. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the reason for trusting Jesus is that he will lead us there. He is the way. You don't need to know the way, Thomas. You just need to know me. I am the way. I remember a few years ago, uh, our leaders' meetings, we normally meet in Space for Grace. And on one particular occasion, at reasonably short notice, we had to change venue at short notice. Marty uh, and I were uh, live, in, live in Sainfield, and uh, the meeting was somewhere in Balnehinch. I knew where it was, and I said, well, why don't I come and meet you, and I'll take you there. 
and all sounded like a good plan. And I was out, and we arranged that there's a little lay-by on the Balnehinch Road in Saintfield, and there's a little lay-by outside some houses. And the plan was that I would stand there on the road, and Marty would pull in and pick me up. What I hadn't realized was in the middle of winter, at quarter past seven at night, it's impossible to tell who is driving what car. Add to that the fact that I didn't even know what car Marty drove. And so as I stood at the side of the road looking as the cars, these two lights would walk past and started trying to look in. And then I got these really strange looks from all these people as, as they sped up and drove on past. And I realized it's not a good strategy to stand at the side of the road, some baldy man in a black coat looking in at the car. It's little wonder the car sped up. And so I decided to adopt a different strategy. I stood at the side of the road and I looked in the distance so that my distinctive hairstyle could be seen by all passers-by, but I wasn't looking at them. And much to my relief, a car pulled up, the two white lights came up, and this one pulled in, indicated, and pulled into the right of the lay-by. And I jumped into the car, opened the door, and I started explaining to Marty. I said, thank goodness you've come. And I started to tell him about how embarrassing it had been. Shut the door, and I was pulling the seatbelt, and just as I clipped the seatbelt, I turned. And unless Marty had changed his hairstyle to be ginger... <laughs> and had grown a beard in the last 24 hours. I realized I'd made a serious mistake. The driver turned to me and he said, I'm not Marty. <laughs> and thankfully he was not armed and he saw the funny side of it and that is not a word of a lie. I told Marty when I got into this car, that's gonna find its way into a sermon sometime. But the strategy was a good one because rather than explaining the directions to Marty, I was saying, I'll, I'll take you there. I'll get in the car and show you the way to go. In that storm that we mentioned a few weeks ago where the, where the disciples were on the lake and they saw Jesus walking on the water, Jesus didn't give them directions to get to shore. He got into the boat and took them to shore. Jesus doesn't give us directions. He says, I am the way. I will take you there. Invite me in. Not only that, I'm not just telling you the truth. I am the truth. It all makes sense in Jesus. I am the life. I'm not just telling you about the life. I'm the source of life and life in all its fullness. In this moment where you're facing anxiety, everything finds meaning in Jesus. So if you're troubled, he says, trust me, because there's a place for you, and I'm going to be there, but not only that, I'm going to take you there. But what if for you, <clears throat> you're thinking to yourself, I get that. And I understand the promise of eternity. I'm thankful for the promise of eternity. But right now, I'm desperately lonely. Right now, my health is desperately poor. Right now, my marriage is in a mess. Right now, I'm going to work tomorrow, and my boss <clears throat> is a bully. Is there any encouragement for me now, in this moment? My heart is troubled. John chapter 14, we go, 
on a little bit later and we go to verse 16, 17, and 18. And Jesus says this in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says, you see, in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper. And he said to them, you know him, he dwells in you and he will be with you. God, the Holy Spirit, you see, is not an observer. He's the one who heals our hearts, stills our storms and supplies our needs. And he says to you, and he says to me, lean on me, search for me in this moment. Jesus says, invite me into this boat because God, who I am, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, I will come in. I've told you these things, Jesus said, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And this statement from Jesus, next, next slide there, Jacob, is simple but profound. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So if your heart is troubled today, take these words to heart. Jesus says, actively trust me pursue me. There's a place for you and I will be there and I will take you there. But I'm with you now. Invite me in to your circumstances today. I'm thinking primarily here of the circumstances of a troubled heart which is brought around by circumstances where the rug has been pulled from under us. Sometimes that can be very dramatic and sometimes it can be just something smaller, relatively smaller, but the impact can still be severe. This is much about the fearful heart or the anxious heart. But today, you might have a broken heart, and that's not an anxiety thing. That's a loss, and there is a time for mourning. And there is a storm that we are not promised that won't happen. Because Jesus said that he will bring us peace even in the storm. But today, I believe he invites you and he invites me into the boat. Because he says, I am the way. I am the truth. Everything makes sense in me. And I am the life. The life that I promised can be yours. And he said, come on to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And he doesn't promise that if he won't fulfill it. And that's why he says to you and me, trust me. Trust me in these circumstances you're facing, because I'm it. I'm the life. We're going to sing now, um, if the guys can come up. Uh, and this song really focuses on Jesus. Yes, it's the blood of Jesus, but about how much he is everything for us. So if this means something to you, sing it to God from your heart and worship him in the promises he's given us. Thanks, guys. <laughs>